Hello and welcome back to American Youth. Or if this is your first time, welcome in. My name is Dustin Oliver. This is the American Youth Podcast. Um, so this episode does not need much of an introduction at all. Um, the only things that I want to say um, are this episode embodies what I wanted to do with the show. Um, I wanted to sit down and have conversations with people and break barriers and destigmatize things that are way overstigmatized and have conversations and to listen. I mean, this is just exactly what I wanted to do. Um, this is one of my absolute favorite sit down, talk, conversations, interviews, whatever you want to call it, that I've had in my experience doing this show so far, um, including ones that haven't come out yet. And I think that this conversation is so important and I think that this story is so important because I think that you wouldn't normally hear stories like this on a day-to-day basis. Um, This is Sean, and Sean is going to talk about his struggle with addiction and overcoming his addiction and what he's doing now. Um, He's an addiction coach and he's an addiction counselor, um, and he's, I think, really, really good at it because he has been through it and he's qualified. Um, So I just want to kind of hand this over, but also I want to say if you guys, if you, if anyone's listening and you like the podcast, please subscribe to us, maybe leave us a, like a a nice five-star rating, no pressure. Um, If you want to email me, uh, AmericanYouthPodcast at gmail.com. Our Instagram is at WeAreAmericanYouth. So check us out and get connected because there's a lot of cool things that I think are coming out pretty soon. And also Sean's links are in the, going to be in the about me of this podcast. But I do think, I don't even want to say anything else. Um, I just listen to it all the way through. Um, listen to the beginning, the middle, and the end. And I think this is one of the most important things that you'll hear, at least today, maybe. But anyway, uh, I'm going to go ahead and play this conversation. This is Sean telling his story on American Youth. sponsored that's right um, yeah <laughs> if we had like a picture and image like it's like oh hello oh hi that's right um, <laughs> like you casually pick post like place it like that i mm-hmm. can't fucking talk here um hey sean how are you i'm great i'm good oh I'm, you didn't ask me oh how are you i'm good <laughs> i'm sorry um anyway um so thank you for coming over here and thank you for talking to me um because I think this is like a, a topic that's really, really important. And especially we were just talking about before we started recording, um, uh, there was a big lawsuit that was just filed against um, uh, the companies that made Oxycontin and mm-hmm. the companies that made generic version of Oxycontin as well. Um, and I also was reading an article saying that they were not only were they like, su- they were also suing them for like, um, what is it? Like addiction counseling and stuff, um, which I think is like really just really interesting. Like this has been a, a drug that's been out for so long. And then now people are finally getting like legal grounds to be like, this is not, mm-hmm. you know, maybe not as useful as you, you think it may be. Um, and I feel like you have a little bit of like personal experience with that. Um, so like, I kind of want to like give you the floor. Um, and then maybe I'll like interject every now and then. Um, but 
Yeah, I mean, I think you've got a really interesting story, and I think that people need to hear it. Okay. Um, so you want to, whenever you're ready, you're good to go. Just go in wherever. Yeah, huh? just go okay. ahead. Okay. So, yeah, um, I definitely have an interesting history, you know, with addiction and whatnot, um, leading up to opiates being my main addiction of choice. Um, you know, but I think it starts way before that. And I think what's important for me to recognize is that I believe that the opposite of addiction is connection. And if I'm being honest with myself and looking back on the past, you know, it's something that I've always craved but never truly had, or therefore the illusion of not having it, um, based on, you know, my early childhood and my experience with um, my family. So I think that's probably the best place to start off is the 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 precursor to the actual addiction. Um, and, you know, looking back on that time, I come from extremely um, dysfunctional family system, basically. Um, my father was a drug addict, opiate addict. So, you know, definitely there's that hereditary component to it, you know, passed down from generation to generation. Even though he wasn't actually in my life, um, you know, I ended up being addicted to the same substance that he's addicted to, to this day. So, you know, it's very interesting. Um, but early on, you know, so addiction has impacted my family and me since the beginning, um, right out of the gate. Um, my, my father and mother got divorced when I was two years old and that left somewhat of a void. And I think that's when my problems with connection really started to come up. Um, from there, you know, my whole life, I've really searched that out, but I've also experienced a lot of just situations. I, I moved around a lot, you know, I moved 20 times by the time that I was 18 years old. So I experienced a lot of that lack of stability, lack of connection, always having to start over somewhere new. And I think that that has really fed my disconnection in a lot of different ways. So growing up, um, it was a struggle for me just to fit in, to feel a part of any kind of group or scenario or situation. Um, one of the big things is I, I come from a family that my brother was a drug addict early on, and, and he is actually the one that introduced it, you know, substances to me. So growing up, um, I experienced a lot of, you know, just just the interactions and the relationship with him as an individual um, really influenced me in a lot of negative ways. Not only was he the first person to introduce me to drugs and alcohol, but he was also, you know, a really bad influence in the sense of like guiding me in the right direction because he was the only actual role model that I ever had because, you know, my father wasn't around or, you know, we'd have step parents and stepfathers that were around that weren't really engaging with us. Um, some of them were even abusive. So I come from a background where I've experienced abuse, um, and, and, and just more of that, you know, just more of that severing that connection, just feeling like, what is wrong with me? I, I think that that was like a big question. You know, some of my own shame messaging early on was what is wrong with me? Why is my life this way? Why have I been dealt the cards that I've been dealt? And, you know, I, I, I just didn't understand it. You know, I just thought I had been dealt a shitty hand and I had to figure it out. So I think that's what really led me to, you know, using drugs and alcohol. So my first experience with anything drug related, I was 10 years old, right? 10 year old kid um, 
getting introduced to marijuana for the first time outside of a trailer park. My brother was, you know, four years older than me and him and his friend thought it was a great idea and thought it was funny to get a 10 year old high. Um, and that, that was my first experience. I think what I felt in that moment, I don't remember feeling actually high or anything, but I remember feeling connected to the older people, the older crowd. Um, so that was something that I craved. I craved connection. I was like, okay, so this is a thing that could create connection for me, right? I can feel accepted if I'm doing something like this. So I think that was what reinforced it. And then it kind of drove my, um, desire to connect with these people that were doing something different. So that was my first experience with that. Um, like I said, I lacked stability. I moved around a lot, um, different areas all throughout Northern Atlanta, um, Marietta area, Canton area. Can I ask, can I ask why you guys moved Mm -hmm. around a lot? So one of the reasons is I grew up when my mother grew up, she was a single mother with three kids with three different dads. Okay. So she struggled to, you know, pay rent or, you know, with jobs and she would have to move, um, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So, you know, it was more situations like that, maybe not being able to pay rent. So we had to go somewhere else, you know, situations like that. Um, I mean, it got so bad at one point. Um, I mean, we lived in a campground in a camper, um, situations like that. Yeah. So yeah, we just kind of struggled financially growing up. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's fine. I ask as many questions as you like. Um, so yeah, that was you know a big thing that was going on. Um, so around that time, 10 to 15 years old, um, that was really my experimental stage of experiencing different drugs and alcohol, and also my behavior. So I had a lot of disconnection and um, a lot of problems leading up to this, of course, but this is when I really started to act out. I started to act out um, more aggressively. So like I said, I was treated pretty badly by my brother and his friends. They would abuse me. They would do all kinds of crazy things. I mean, you know, just thinking back on, you know, my story and what, what, it, what it was, I mean, there, would, there was times where my brother would strip all my clothes off and lock me outside, right? Or he would um, punch me in my face for no reason. And just do things that were pretty cruel, you know, that yeah. didn't make sense to, you know, a young kid, right? It doesn't make sense well, at I, all. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think that mm. makes sense at all. Yeah. So I don't even know where this came from, but he was always been like that. You know, it's on one side of the thing where he's introducing me to drugs and alcohol and like, you know, he's, he's fitting in with me. But then on the other side, he was always really mean to me. And to this day, I really don't know why, you know, he feels really bad. He's made amends to me because of it. But, you know, he's he's always been like that. So early on in my early days and, you know, kind of going into that of why I think the his influence on me has really affected me in a negative way early on, Um, because even the way it's more like that toxic masculinity of things. And that's how he treated me. Um, and he made, he influenced me to the point where I started to do the same thing. And all I can think about is that saying like hurt people, hurt people, right? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, but we do that. And then if we do not break the pattern, we will continue in the same patterns, doing the same thing to other people. It's like, if I don't fix the cut, I will continue to bleed on people that didn't cut me. Right. So that, you know, that, that's what I think about with that situation. Um, but where that you know, a lot of that influence that he had on me was basically 
he would make me feel also like I was a pussy or I was weak, you know, mm-hmm. if I didn't like stand up for myself or um, if I didn't act a certain way. Really, like really creating this inner turmoil, right? The, yeah. So this is what's really going on. And I think, you know, that's the stuff that really severs that connection. And I think just as human beings in general, if we have a, a disconnection, right, we are going to seek out connection in some kind of way. So early on, I started finding that in drugs and alcohol, right? Yeah. You know, so the first time that I ever experienced, you know, that, that feeling of completeness was probably when I experienced Xanax for the first time. I was 13 years old and it was my brother that gave it, gave it to me. Um, and like, I just felt, you know, that saying like I had arrived, like I'm good. Like, this is great. This is what I needed. I had no more worries. I wasn't worried about anything. Like it was just completely numb. And I was like, finally, (laughs) finally I connect to something. So, and that really reinforced it. And that's when it really started to, to set off. And then, like I was saying, just going back, um, this was when behavior things were going on. Um, I was getting in fights in school. Um, I was operating out of that system of hurt people, hurt people. Mm -hmm. Um, I was more aggressive. Um, and at the same time, I was terrified. I was afraid. And there's a big part of me. And it's so interesting when I look back and I analyze my past and I see the way that I was coming up. Um, there was this piece of fear that was involved with this like egomania in a sense. Like I had to present a certain way, um, but I was terrified at the same time. So I had to present as this badass or this person that, you know, I'll beat your ass kind of guy. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was terrified on the inside, like scared. And, you know, and and so I was just acting out in certain ways because I, I don't even know why. Right. It's like yeah. seeking validation, attention, you know, thinking that maybe I'm just kind of programmed this way. Right. It's like the classic. It's like when you think about like the film adaptation of like the bully or like, mm-hmm. you know, the the the. The, like the bad kid or whatever <clears throat> it's like lit- it's literally you know how they show like um <clears throat> who's that character and it's like a cartoon where like they're like a big bo- i don't remember but um <laughs> but no so like yeah it's like literally and then you're kind of going back and you're like you know damn like you know, <laughs> fuck it. it's like the co- the yeah. common like the common look of like what like a bully or somebody who mm-hmm. would, like would be super aggressive would be like yeah Oh yeah. So yeah. And that, that's my experience. And I like, you know, there's part of me that hates that, you know, I hate it, but I learned from it, you know, looking back on it now, um, I can heal those deeper wounds and I can recover from that. Right. That, Mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of the beauty of the process. Um, and then not only that, I think it qualifies me to help other people that have similar situations doing the work that I do and working with different clients and whatnot. So, so oh, hold on, let's put a pin one second. <clears throat> what work do you do? I, we didn't say that at the beginning. Okay. So, yeah. So, um, I, I work, so I'm an, a, I'm a certified addiction counselor, um, mm. credentialed through GACA, and I'm also a certified experiential specialist doing experiential work such as role playing, um, using props, and just it, it's, it's about cultivating, cultivating an experience so you can go deeper, right? Yeah. Using different things. I mean, it's, it's just wonderful work. I love it. Mm. And then I'm also an anger resolution specialist, um, certified anger resolution specialist, and just doing deeper work with that. And I really relate to that as well, you know? Yeah. So my big theory is that I can only take a client as far as I've gone myself, right? It's my motto, it's what I live by, um, and I'm trying to live that out daily. So I'm always constantly doing more work on myself, 
um, you know, education is key. Like I'm in college. Um, right. And so that, that's a really important part of my story too. Um, you know, getting into that, like, especially with them, you know, the, the behavior issues in middle school and high school and, and eventually actually dropping out, um, and getting a GED and, and whatnot. So, um, but yeah, so I work as a, a, a life coach. Um, so I have my own private practice, um, connected to MVP consulting and we do, um, concierge recovery support services and it's life coaching and recovery coaching for individuals that really can't afford or don't have insurance. So it's something that's helping out people that can't, you know, maybe can't afford like an addiction treatment program. Yeah, no, that's great. Especially with like a lot of like the healthcare things that are going mm-hmm. on right now. Yeah. With people just not being able to afford or like there's other things where like, I know that certain like rehabilitation, uh, like rehab centers, or treatment centers are like, it's like a thousand or something. It's like a couple thousand dollars like a, a day. Night. Yeah, <laughs> which is just insane to me because I think when I think about like somebody who really desperately needs help mm-hmm. and you get to the point to where you're like, I need help, which is already like, you know, just being like, I need help is already like a, a like a point of like, like a win. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and then you get to that point to where you're like, I really need help. And then you go in and they're like, oh, well, it's going to cost you a couple thousand dollars a night. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, well, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to be like, oh. Okay, well, never mind with that, you know, yeah. like, <clears throat> yeah, oh, anyway, yeah. but yeah, no, so I think that's like really great that it's like, it's like, especially like right now, like helping people that don't necessarily have, because when I think about this group of people, this like dis- disconnected group of people, you you don't think of like uh, millionaires or like, you know, it's just not what you think of. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not sure. But Well, I think that addiction can affect anybody. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's the thing that you get surprised by. Some of the people that come through the door that are wealthy, that are happy. Um, of course, you know, never say any names. But, you know, you see people that come through that you would be like, you have everything. Yeah. Right? And they have all the money, all the material things. And then they're dealing with this void. And they're filling it with drugs and alcohol and, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. So, like, you know, it's, it's really interesting. But, you know, I think addiction affects all classes, all people. And it's like a common ground, too. Yeah. Well, I mean, and then it's the same. It's like you talk about this void that it's kind of it, it, it's through all socioeconomic classes, mm-hmm. you know. So it's like you have like one group that you have like the super wealthy that are like experiencing the same void that like somebody in a lower socioeconomic class would feel as well. Yeah. And so I think that like goes to further the point that it's like, this is not, this is not something that, and maybe I worded it wrong earlier. I mean, I'm not, I'm not talking about like people like millionaires being mm-hmm. like, you know, why would they be unhappy? Just <laughs> means that they would have the resources to be able to, yeah. as compared yeah. to somebody who wouldn't. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that it's like it, it uh, through all classes, it goes to show that like addiction is not something I think that, can be like pinpointed to a specific group of people or a specific race or a specific class of people. It literally hits, I mean, like it hits everybody, you know, it does not discriminate. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. And that's what I love. But you know, at the same time, there are a lot of people, I mean, that need this help that can't afford it. So I do see what you're saying, you know, and the majority of the people we're trying to create resources for that. And honestly, like, I mean, you know, I've worked in different treatment facilities and, it's, it's interesting because I offer free groups, right? I offer a free meditation. Like I believe through meditation, through support, um, through building a community, through doing some deeper work, um, with like a life coach or an addiction counselor. And also we have resources for, you know, people that experience trauma. We do trauma therapy, you know, Mm -hmm. some of the people on our team. 
So it's like when you have this dynamic and it's self-pay and, you know, we're also offering free resources, we're seeing the same results that, you know, some of these yeah. treatment programs are that are charging you a thousand dollars a day. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's definitely other resources out there that can help. Um, it's just more about instead of exploiting the drug addict, maybe helping them and guiding them through yeah. the process and reintroducing them to a process that's going to create connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. To where you're finally like, you know, you're feeling, I guess, normal. Yeah, yeah, in a sense, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what I mean, normal is. Yeah, well, I mean, like, yeah, I was gonna say as normal as maybe you could be, or at least maybe you could put the persona of normal. Yeah, um, some sense no, of comfort. Yeah, a sense of like, okay, well, I can do other things now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no. So you and you were saying, um, oh my gosh, this is my worst thing. I cut people off, and then I'm like, okay, let's go back, and then it's yeah, like, yeah, okay, yeah. well, where were you? Um, I know where I was at. So okay, yeah, go ahead. I'll trust you then. Okay. So yeah, I was in more of my teenage years, um, just introducing to, you know, the drugs and the alcohol and stuff like that. And I really touched on the the void, you know, like what we were just Mm -hmm. talking about, um, that void getting deeper and deeper. Um, that, I think that was the thing I was getting more and more disconnected from myself, my society, you know, the people around anything spiritual at all, you know, I was definitely not touching that with a, you know, a 10 foot pole. Right. So, um, things were getting worse and behavior was starting to happen i started to you know get more involved with you know the negative behavior and stuff like that fighting and um eventually you know, got um kicked out of school went to alternative school and tried to do better and throughout this time i'm smoking weed and i'm just trying to connect and hang out with my friends and connect with those people um so i was really attracted to the wrong crowds and that really got me in trouble Um, So all through that time, it got to a point where it got so bad that I was actually sent to my father. Um, During this time, and this is really where my addiction started to, well, I think the void was just like, I I feel like there's this piece of me that was literally scooped out of me. Like it it, it took a piece of my soul, right? So when I think about that relationship that I always wanted with my father, right? And I think a lot of people can paint a picture of what a relationship with parents is supposed to look like. And for me, I would do that. I would paint this picture of, you know, what this connection was supposed to be like. If I only had my father, if I had my daddy, like things would be better. Things would be great. Like, why is he a drug addict? Why, why, why? You know, all these questions that are just never answered. And when I went to experience him um, and I lived with him, everything seemed perfect, right? Everything settled, the dust had settled. I started doing really well in school. Uh, I was living up there in D.C. with um, my grandma and my father, and that's actually where my father is from. Um, and so I, I I got up there, and I was like, man, this is it. This is great. This is what I always wanted. I just want to bond and want to learn from my dad. Um, and it was perfect for a little while. Um, but in that time, I just didn't realize that he had an addiction. I didn't fully know it. I fully didn't understand it. I knew he had like legal issues and stuff growing up. But I never had been around somebody with an actual drug problem. So things, Was he hiding that? Yeah, he was hiding it from me <clears throat> very well. He was well. hiding it pretty well, right? Until mm-hmm. like a certain point or... Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, he was hiding it until it started to catch up to him. And this is my, like looking back on it, I see it now. It's the, you know, the geographical cur kind of thing. I'm going to leave here. I'm going to move here and it's going to help me. Mm-hmm. Right? So... Looking back on it, I see now that we were actually running from his addiction, yeah. right? Running from his disease. 
um, and it would catch up everywhere we went. But um, things got bad in D.C., so we moved to Connecticut. We did some work. He was a master electrician, and we did construction. We worked together. It was great. Loved it. Spent a summer up there, and then we moved out to California and San Diego. Um, out there, I absolutely loved it. It was beautiful. It was great. Um, went to school. I was actually in a program that I was going to catch up and graduate on time. Like So oh, things are starting to click. Things are starting to happen for me. So I'm like, okay, this is really good. I like this. Um, so shortly after that, out of nowhere, you know, things started missing in the house. Like I think the TV went missing. Like you can only imagine, you know, it's like now I'm like, oh, he took it to the pawn shop, yeah. right? So things were starting to go wrong. Um, he was starting to stay out later. You know, he was spending more time in his room, isolated, locked up, locked up. And finally he said that he had some legal issues that he had to go take care of. Um, and just out of nowhere, so we had to leave, right? We had to break our lease, um, and I got sent back to Georgia. He went back to um, D.C. I got back home, and I started experimenting more with marijuana and stuff like that, um, maybe taking pills here and there, but nothing too serious yet, but still kind of on a daily basis of smoking marijuana and stuff like that. Um, so after a period of time, I'm about 18, 19 years old, um, and my dad decides that he wants to go to Florida, right? So he's like, we'll go to the beach. That will solve all our problems, like all the yeah. time. Like, go to the ocean, go to the beach, we'll solve our problems, we're good. So we go down there and we do not have a plan, right? Such, you know, such addict mentality. I'm just going to do this, right? It's going to save my life. It's going to fix me. We're going to go down there without a plan and see what happens, right? Mm -hmm. So it goes down, we go down there and it's tougher than we think. While this time in Georgia, I actually got my license and I got a vehicle. So we were, we were actually driving down there and, um, we ended up having to live in that car, right? So we were experienced. That was my first time experiencing being homeless. Um, so then that, and that was a powerful moment in my life and I was okay. I was okay. Still, I'm, I'm really easy going for whatever reason. My whole life, I've just been like, okay, I accept it for what it is. I don't throw temper tantrums. I'm just like, okay, I'm going to accept this. I, I've moved around so many times. I can adapt to any situation, right? I'm a chameleon. I'm a chameleon. Yeah. Um, so being down there, um, it started to get a little rough in the beginning. He talked me into like finally selling my car. He had gotten work. We were living in a hotel. Things were starting to get bad with his addiction. Like it's the worst place to go. <laughs> you know, if you have a drug addiction, like you're going to a party city. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. What, what city were you in? Panama City, Florida. Oh, hell. <laughs> we'll have to talk afterwards. Because yeah. I, I lived there. Oh God! For man. a different reason, but I'll, I'll, yeah, we'll talk afterwards. Okay, yeah. So I'm living there for a while, and you know things are okay, but people are starting to realize that my dad has a problem, and we're living in these like mom and pop hotels, mm -hmm. and these people are coming around, helping me out, like feeding me sandwiches and stuff like that, because they know like we don't have food, we don't have money, right? So things are you know things are rough. Um, at one point, we were it was so bad off that. My mother called somebody. She had some connection in Panama City. She called this person. This person had a connection to you know the, the mayor of Panama City or something like that. This guy shows up and um, takes me shopping. He you know, buys me this like you know, like um, grocery cart full of food. Um, it was really nice. You know, he's all shiny with his nice suit and everything. Yeah. And um, I just thought that was so interesting. Like, I'm like, oh, wow, mom, I'm pulling some strings down here, right? Mm -hmm. I was like, it was real help. Um, hey, you she know got that. the plug. She got the plug, right? <laughs> <laughs> she got the plug down there. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, and, and things started to, like, really heat up. Eventually, I got a job. We both had a job doing electrical work, and we moved into a nicer hotel. 
Um, we stayed in hotels pretty much the whole time we were down there. Um, but his addiction started to k- kick up. And this time he couldn't so much hide it from me, right? Because we're so in, such in close quarters. Before I lived, you know, with my grandma or we were doing the geographical change. He was running from it, you know, ducking and dodging his addiction and trying to keep it away from me. But at this point, it was, it was all out in the open. Um, it got so bad that every weekend on payday, he would lock me out. He would lock me out. And of course, like me, just being the person that I'm in, I was really driven and, you know, to meet with um, people that were, you know, selling drugs and hanging out and partying. So I started making friends down there. Um, I met, I met, I became friends with like the neighborhood crack dealer. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was the guy that was selling my dad crack. And I remember like hiding in a bush, looking at him while, my, while he's selling crack to my dad. He's like, man, you know, you know, this is like my business. You know, I hope you don't like, you're not offended by this and you but your dad's coming to get some crack from me. And I was like, man, it's his fucking life. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, still just molding, even though it was tearing me up in the inside. Right. Why, you know, if it didn't bother me, I wouldn't have been standing in a fucking bush, just watching the whole yeah, scenario yeah, yeah. go down, like dying on the inside. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, you know, not allowing myself to cry, not allowing myself to feel emotions, just constantly pushing that away, pushing that away, pushing that away. Um, I remember the emotional buildup got so bad that, you know, I think we were probably down there for about a year. Um, and it got so bad and I just couldn't take it anymore. And I ended up moving out of the hotel with my father and I moved into a trailer that had, that had, didn't have running water and it didn't have electricity. Like, and I was just, I needed an escape. And around that time I moved in there, I was there for like maybe a month. And I, I finally broke down and called my mother and I, I came back to Georgia. Um, I remember like calling her and just having this breakdown and like I finally shed some tears and just kind of let it all out. Um, and then for me, like, I mean, I, I swear, like that's where that, that void was just created. It was so deep at this point. Um, but when I, I got a, I got a Greyhound ticket back to Georgia, I got back to Georgia, my mom picked me up and I remember feeling like so settled and just like, oh, just finally finally mm-hmm. and but so dark and depressed at the same time but like so relieved like such a weird mix of emotions and connections and i can still remember it vividly getting in my mom's van riding away from the greyhound not even really having anything to say right just you know how are you, you know i'm just like this yeah. is this is what i needed you know so getting back though this is where my addiction started to pick up um i get back and everybody's partying right everybody's partying all my friends are 18 and 19 um and you know you talk about the plug so i've always had connections right so i want to be a part of the party so i found a way to be the center of attention so i started selling drugs started selling like party drugs like lsd um molly you know uh, marijuana stuff like that edibles and and i had these connections with these guys that were part of like the dead family um, and they started selling me, um, all this stuff, for really good deals. So I was all of a sudden, boom, center of the party. So this void that I dealt with that I built, right. Didn't deal with it at all. Just jump right into partying women, you know, these kind of things, um, started actually traveling around Georgia, going to the different, um, different concerts, going to, um, you know, Athens, going to university of West Georgia, going to these college campuses and just setting up shop and selling drugs and, I mean, nothing to the point of like being like rich or anything, but you know, it was enough to really boost there's always my ego a demand, up, right? <laughs> yeah, right? no matter where you go, there's always a demand. Yeah, yeah. and it was exciting, right? Mm-hmm. I was having fun. I was, I was hooking up. I was, you know, this is before it really got bad, um, but I didn't realize what I was actually doing. Um, psychedelics also kind of fucked with me a little bit. <laughs> it fucked up my head a little bit, and mm-hmm. really started to challenge that ego that I had developed. And, it's, and when I started to do it on the weekends. 
I started to experience um, kind of a breakdown in my psyche of like really starting to analyze myself in a different way. Um, noticing that I operated out of ego and all these fear things and these different complexes. And I, I started to really become aware of that. Right. So this was kind of like a turn in my life where I went from like this egotistical kind of guy um, to turning into this like hippie dude, right? Yeah. Like just full on just morph. I don't want to be like that anymore. I want to be like this now. Um, and, and I, and really what it was looking back on it, I was just morphing to that crowd, right? I was morphing yeah, into yeah, that yeah. crowd. I was, you know, I was, I was craving that connection of that crowd. So I did anything, you know, and I didn't realize it, but that's what was happening because that was my new skill. I can, I can put on a mask for you. I can become that mask and, you know, and I try to, you know, work that out. So, you know, and I started doing that and, um, and then until that stopped working. Right. So for a while that made me feel really connected doing the party drugs and all that stuff made me feel great, made me feel connected. But then it stopped working. Right. Those things stopped working. Um, I didn't feel so connected. So I needed something else. And around that time, I was probably 2021 and I started drinking like every single day. So there's this period of time that I'm getting into from 18 to 25 where I didn't breathe the sober breath at all. Right. And it was completely progressive. Um, so so I started drinking. I started hanging out with a different crowd, um, morphed again. Right. So I morphed to that crowd, you know, I was still selling a little bit of drugs and doing that kind of thing. Um, but they were more of like a heavy metal crowd. Um, and I started hanging out with them and drinking all the time, drinking all the time. And then I finally turned 21. And then that's when I found the bar scene and the bar scene was very convenient for me. And I noticed a lot of people in the bar scene were doing cocaine so this is as like, oh yeah, and this is the, the, you know, the progression of the whole thing, you know, and I'm constantly throughout this time, I'm looking for that, that perfect combination just to make me feel like nothing, I guess. Right. <laughs> feel complete looking for an enhancement, constantly looking for an enhancement. Um, so yeah, at that time I started to sell cocaine, do cocaine and drink every night. That was like my full-time job throughout this time. I never really was able to keep a job. I'd rather sell drugs and just party. That was, that was my thing. Um, and it's funny cause like I was one of those drug addicts that I'm like, I don't have an alcohol problem, right? Looking back on, but I drank every day for like two to three years. So I'm like, okay, maybe yeah, I'll you're just... like focusing on all the others and you're like, well, the drinking's not a problem. Yeah. You know? Or it's like, I had somebody tell me last night, they were like, um, they were like, I asked my friend, I was like, why, why, like you're a smoker, you smoke cigarettes. And he's like, no, I only smoke when I drink. And he's like, you're always drinking. Yeah. So like, you know, yeah, you smoke cigarettes <clears throat> anyway. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh no. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, things just started progressively getting worse. And, um, as, as that progressed, um, so did my void, right? Like, so, you know, there was this underlying thing, like there was a lot of times where, if I didn't get the perfect combination of drugs and alcohol, I would just feel completely disconnected or emotional or, or you never knew what kind of like person you were going to get. Like what, how is Sean going to show up tonight? Kind of deal. I started to become more emotionally reactive. Um, you know, I, I might get in a fight. So like, I mean, who knows? Right. Um, and things just got really bad for me. Things started to get worse and the drugs started to become more of a, a working part of my life. I was doing a lot more cocaine at that time. Um, I couldn't be in a relationship. Every relationship that I've ever been in, 
um, until sobriety was a really toxic relationship. Um, especially most of it was built around drugs and, you know, sex and stuff like that. So a lot of that time too was like, you know, going home with different women, different things going on. And that was, you know, that was my experience, but I had this inability to make a true authentic connection with anybody. So even though I was like turning into this party guy and like being around people all the time, I still felt really alone, really, really alone. Um, I remember, and, and people called me, people connected it to me. Um, people liked me, right? But I didn't like myself during that time at all, you know? And it just started getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And I just felt disconnected so badly most of the time. Um, and then it was like either really high or really low. And it was like never in between, right? Never just content. I would wake up and I would want to do some kind of drug, but I was always on something. Um, and a lot of this time, like doing the Xanax and here and there. Um, but eventually things started to change. And that's when I got introduced to Oxycontin, Roxy's and stuff like that. And that was when that was really bad. I mean, I believe there was this time where like all those pill mills were popping up everywhere. They were doing all the doctor shopping, stuff like mm -hmm. that. And um, people were getting Roxy's by like, you know, the boatload. Like, and it was crazy. And they just came out of nowhere. And, and so I capitalized on that. And I was like, okay, I'll sell these. And I wasn't doing them. Um, and, but shortly after that, I would start partaking, right? I'd, snort a line here and there, do a little bit there and there. But I started hanging out more and more. My friends started becoming more and more um, centered around drug addicts. And the people that were wanting to hang around me were actual drug addicts. And I had some traumatic experience happen where one of my good friends, and I, I felt a lot of guilt of this going in because, you know, I was the guy that got him the pills, right? Got us the pills and we partied all night. And this was a real turning point for me. Um, and I mean, I felt like a monster, um, but I helped my buddy get these pills and, you know, um, we were out partying and I didn't know he was doing all these other pills and stuff like that and mixing all these things. Like I didn't know that, but we were just doing this drug called Opana and, um, we got really, really fucked up one night. You know, there was three of us, there was another guy and, um, we went back home and I was staying at my mom's house at that time. And for whatever reason, I went into the house, he went in the couch and I went into my mom's room and slept on the floor with the, the dogs. Um, and my mom said that we were so messed up out of our minds that they stayed up all night watching us, watching us, watching us. And what happened next was, um, my breathing was real shallow. Um, but, you know, I made it through the night. I made it through the night. It was probably like eight in the morning. And I went in the kid, I mean, in the living room where my friend was on the couch and he was still, I mean, he was still, um, alive at this point. Um, but I had woke him up and I said, Hey man, like, cause he had fell, fallen asleep sitting up. And so he had laid back down. Um, and I don't know what happened. I don't know if he ended up taking more drugs. Um, but my mom said up to that point, we were both still breathing um, but later on on Facebook, we, we noticed that he had made a post the night before saying that he felt like he was on the edge and he was ready to jump. So I don't know what happened, um, from that point. Um, but I went into my room, my mom had checked on both of us. She said, okay, we're both breathing. We're okay. It's been, you know, eight hours. Um, she went to sleep. It was around 1 PM. She came in and I hear this loud scream. Um, and I walk out. And there my friend is laying lifeless on the couch. Um, and there's bloody foam coming down his nose. And 
I remember this vividly, you know, it, it really, it really fucked me up in a lot of ways. And I remember like pulling him off the couch and trying to give him CPR and just bloody foam coming out of his nose. And we called the police, um, you know, I, and I never pursued it. You know, I've made, you know, I, I've, I felt guilty because, you know, it'd be just being a part of it. Right. Even though I knew he wanted the drugs and he was the one that was like pushing me to go get them and we went and got them. Right. Um, I still felt a lot of guilt for that. You know, just furthering my own shame, my own guilt. Like, I'm a fucked up person. I'm this, I'm that, I'm that, I'm this. I'm just a drug addict. Why wasn't it me that died that night? Why did he have to die? Um, and that's where things started to get really bad. Um, and part of it is like, it drives me crazy because I didn't feel the emotions. Like, I look back on it and I remember just feeling like down. But that was such a normal feeling to me. Like, it didn't really affect me. So I just numbed. You know, I went and started drinking. I went and drank. Um, and around this time, my dad came back in my life, um, and he had a connection from Las Vegas or something, some doc, some doctor he knew, some crooked doctor. Um, and, um, he started getting all these Roxy's shipped out. And so I immediately turned to that because the alcohol wasn't working. Like I had experienced trauma now, um, and it just wasn't working anymore, right? The alcohol wasn't working. Going out, hanging out wasn't working anymore. So I started doing Roxy's. I started smoking them. I was hanging out with a girl that was doing them. And I was selling them. And we were getting them shipped out from Las Vegas. And um, and it was good. It was, it, I mean, it, was, it, it worked. Like, it, it numbed me completely, you know? I didn't have mm. to feel anything. I could just brush everything away you know and and what i was seeking was like that sense of feeling comfortable and that's why my drug addiction was so progressive it would move to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing so after a while my dad ended up fucking that guy over and you know not to just skim over that trauma because i mean that trauma was very serious you know it really impacted me and i've actually done a lot of work around that and you know my own sobriety i had to right um, I've made amends where, you know, I've even like wrote letters to him and burned him really symbolic process, yeah. um, of reaching out to them and, you know, the, you know, even the family and it, it's just difficult, right? It's difficult. It's a struggle. Um, but you know, that really skyrocketed. It was like rocket fuel for my addiction from that point on. And that's when things got, started getting just really bad. I started smoking the Roxy's became first time I ever felt sick. Um, and I remember like needing it and I was like, what the hell is this? And my friend was like, well, have you done any Roxy's today? And I was like, no. He was like, snort a line. And then I snorted a line and it went away. And I was like, holy shit, like, okay. So I started becoming physically dependent on it. Um, shortly after that, um, one of my friends introduced me to the um, needle and I became an IV user. And I didn't even think about it in my whole life. I was like, I'll never be like that. I'll never do that. Um, and I did it and it was it was the most euphoric feeling that I've ever felt. It was the high that I was looking for, right? For tem temporarily anyways. Um, it was just like, it was just how LSD was for me. It was, it was how alcohol was for me and Coke was for me. But, you know, it only lasted so long. I always needed a bigger, better bang. I needed something better. I needed something to make me for feel more comfortable. Um, so I started doing that and um, I would do it here and there, but it wasn't as like serious. Um, and then, um, and then, and then the day I met heroin. So I was selling the Roxy's, I was doing that deal. And then these guys I knew from high school, um, and it was crazy. It was, it was like almost impeccable timing. Um, it was around the time that all those pill mills and like the doctors, um, um, 
were getting shut down, right? They were looking at it as a problem. So these um these um facilities that you know were prescribing these pain clinics were popping up everywhere during that time, um, and then all of a sudden they got cracked down on, and then they were getting shut down left and right. And so Roxy's kind of like disappeared. Oxycontin started disappearing around that time, and um, heroin came right in time. And and that's I believe the start of the heroin epidemic, which it's really interesting that it's lined up with that time frame. Right? Maybe it's like supply and demand. Maybe like mm-hmm. like this was coming up, or was it always there and then it became more popular whenever? I, I in my personal journey, it wasn't there, but like all of a sudden there was such a flood of heroin mm-hmm. that it was not. I, I just felt like it couldn't have been like a coincidence. Somebody had yeah. like was timing that right oh i see what you're saying yeah yeah, yeah yeah like it was such a good time time frame because people were getting like i'm talking about bricks of heroin and they have never seen heroin before that doesn't just happen like yeah. you're getting heroin straight from the source with like a stamp on it right and these really nice bricks like no that does not happen just with like a normal person that you know that or a normal drug dealer like it just you don't just fall into that and all of a sudden heroin was everywhere um and this is, you know, at this point I'm shooting up, I'm really struggling. I'm, 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 you know, I'm getting kicked out. I can't maintain, you know, rent anywhere. I can't, you know, I can't sell the drugs cause I'm doing them too much. At one point I got in like 2000 debt, $2,000 debt by this guy and he threatened to kill me. Um, and you know, what I did was I just trade him all my contacts, right? Cause that's more valuable than, you know, the money that I owe you. It's like, Hey, look, these are more people that are going to buy heroin every single day. Because once you get on heroin, you need it every fucking four hours, right? Every five hours. And you know, you're, you're doing a lot. Like at one point I'm doing like a gram to two grams a day. Um, and that was, that was easing the pain and it just got really bad. Like, and then I'm shooting up Coke and heroin. Um, so I'm speedballing, just living a really dangerous game. You know, there's times people are coming into the rooms and finding me passed out with needles in my arm. Um, there's times where, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm guiding myself through a cocaine overdose because I feel like my heart is about to explode and I'm experiencing such a train, you know, like a rush going through my brain that I'm like, man, what the fuck is going on? And like going into a panic. And usually that's when people die is when they go through the panic. Um, so, you know, they, these are the things that I was going through. Um, it was getting so bad at one point. Um, I would, I was using dope in really dirty areas and play, just not, you know, not anything clean. Right. Um, I, I mean, at one point I would, I would use water out of a puddle to shoot up my dope, um, stuff like that. But I would get, um, infections on my arms. Right. And, I only share this is it's like graphic, but you know, it's really just to show the depth that I was, but I would get abscesses on my arms and, um, I was too afraid to go to the hospital to get them checked out. So I'd lance them myself. I'd get these big bubbles and boils and, um, where I was shooting up and I would cut them open myself and find antibiotics on the street. Um, and like, I mean, that could have been life threatening. I got scars all over my arm still from that. Um, and you know, so, um, it just got really bad. I'm wearing long sleeves in the summer to cover up my track marks. Um, and, and it just got really bad and it got to the point, um, where, um, I had just burnt every bridge that I had. Um, people weren't accepting me. Um, my mom said I couldn't stay with her. Um, 
I just had nowhere to go. I was couch surfing. I had warrants for my arrest at this time. Um, and th- there's so much, I know there's so much in the story. Yeah, so yeah. I had to like skip over a lot of it. Um, but you know, it, it just started getting really bad. Um, I, I, I remember the first time I got arrested was for stealing because I was trying to, you know, really fuel my, my heroin addiction. And so I was doing anything that I could and I got arrested for it. And then once I was on probation, I just like, I couldn't stay out of jail. It was so weird. I never gotten in any kind of legal trouble before then. And then once I got, you know, arrested that one time, it was like the ball was rolling. Yeah. Um, and then last year before I got sober, um, I went to jail four times and, um, it just got bad. You know, I got sick of detox and I would go to detox. I would go detox in jail, all that stuff. And it was just miserable. At this point I started to reach my bottom. Things started to just pile up. I was starting to experience a lot of um, consequences. I was, you know, the the biggest consequence was, you know, the emotional disconnection from my family, Um, financial problems, issues, all this stuff is just really piling up. Um, And you can only go so long in that kind of environment. Um, it's very miserable when you're homeless, you don't have any place to go. You have no more resources. Um, you pretty much exhausted all resources. Um, and it it just gets rough. And I finally got to a point where I was like, I'm done with this shit. I am so done. I have had enough and I need to do something else. I, and it, it is so interesting when I had that experience, I went through this, excuse me, a moment of clarity where I just had this like realization that I was going to die if I didn't get sober. It was that way. I was 65 pounds underweight. I am, you know, 200 pounds now. So you just imagine, you know, 65 pounds being underweight with malnourished, like not eating. How much did you weigh? Do you know? Um, I mean, 65. So what is that? Um, 135. What is that? Is that right? Is my math right? I don't know. 65, 200 oh, minus I'm, 65. I'm not... Yeah, and then how tall are you? Um, I'm like 5'10", five, 5'10". Five, okay, yeah, yeah. And I, I have a big build, right? Naturally, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm I built like, um, not like a linebacker, but I got, I mean, I get a little stoutness to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a tough guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> Badass. I'm a big guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so just way underweight. I was just to give you an idea. So once I once I finally admitted that I had a problem and I was like I need to do something different about it, I went to detox this last time and I I turned myself in. I called my probation officer, and while I was in when while I was in detox afterwards, I got I got sent to jail. So I spent thirty days in jail. So my thirty day treatment program was in jail. Like a beautiful yeah. thing, you know. You lucky bastards get to go to these nice 30-day residential programs, yeah. and I'm sitting here like in Passages fucking, Malibu. Yeah, Passages <laughs> Malibu. I'm in this fucking cold um, holding cell, just shivering my ass off, mm. just wishing that I had some dope. Um, so yeah, like, but while I was in there, a lot of things started to change, and it was so weird because it's like the like the ghost of Christmas past, like, you know, taking you to see, uh, um, you know, your past and all the people that have affected you. So it was like that for me in jail. Um, I was introduced to the person that sh- shot me up for the first time. He was in there. Of course you would run into yeah, them. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, um, Oh, Hey, yeah. The first person that ever sold me a Roxy was in there. Like, I'm like, what are the odds of this shit? And then, you know, as I was like finally transitioning out, um, you know, like the guy that sold me the Roxy's, he died like the, the week out of detox. So like people were dropping like flies. And while I was in jail, 
my mom and a, um, one of my friends that was actually an alumni of this program called the extension that I actually, that's what I went through. Um, they, um, they, um, they started like trying to get me into that program while I was in jail. Um, so they kept on going up there and talking to the um, director of the program. And this time I'm 25 years old. And the guy says he's 25 years old. Um, we don't have a success rate with 25 year olds. Tell him to come out and interview, but we can't do anything for him until he gets out of jail. He kept saying that to my mom, my friend that was an alumni, all these people. So I'm sitting in jail and I'm like, oh God, this is just it. Like, I don't, I have no idea what's about to happen. I don't know where I'm going. I'm terrified to get out and experience freedom, right? I'm like, what do I normally do? When I get out, I go and get high. Um, and even though there was a part of me that was done, there was a part of me that wanted to still get high. Like a lot of confusion going on. Now you take my, uh, my survival tool away and I'm, I'm left naked and I'm starting to feel things and I don't like that. You know, yeah. I want to get rid of that, you know, let me get fucked up. So the day of my, um, my court date, um, the director of that program shows up unannounced and this is like the turning point it was like i i just was i was just shocked by the situation and i was so grateful for the opportunity he showed up to my court date and he just came back into the this the holding cell where i was at i wasn't expecting him so it really blew my mind but he walks into the the holding cell area and he's this guy he's got like 25 years sober i didn't know this at the time um and he's just glowing like, I swear to God, like, I'm like, who's this? Jesus, is this God yeah, right yeah. here? Like, this guy's got the light. Like, he, he's wearing this bright pink shirt. He's just smiling, like, loving that he's on the other side of these fucking yeah, bars, yeah. right? And I'm sitting there, and just and, I, and just, it, just to create an, a visual, I'm sitting in that cell, sitting on this cold metal bench, um, handcuffed, shackled, ankles and wrists are... Um, um, shackled and I'm wearing this yellow jumpsuit looking up and I feel so small like I'm in this I literally feel like I'm in a dark hole looking up at him right and he comes in and I'm like who is this fucking guy and he's looking for me right and they let me out of the holding cell I'm sitting down with him he asked me a question he's like do you love yourself and I was like huh what what and I was like yeah I think so and he was like bullshit you would not be in this situation if you loved yourself and I was like, man, you got a point, <laughs> right? Yeah. I was like, wow, yeah, you know what? I don't love myself. Matter of fact, I think I hate myself is what I told him. And just going back and I was like, you know, that was like first time being real honest with somebody about the way I felt. You asked me how I feel. I'm fine. I'm good. I'm good. I'm fine, right? Mm -hmm. No, I hate myself. And I feel a level of despair that I just don't understand, right? I, you know, I didn't know it was like some kind of... Like, like I have some like soul sickness or something, you know, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't know what the hell's going on. And then he asked me, are you, what are you willing to do to get sober? And I said, anything. And he's like, all right, you're mine. And he got me out that day. And the most unbelievable thing about this is he didn't even have a bed open in his treatment facility. He had a, a storage room or it's like an office. Like it's huge. I mean, it's a big storage room. They cleaned out the storage room and they put a mattress in there. And that was my room for a week. Right. I mean, like, you know, I, I didn't believe I was a complete atheist at this point, too. And, you know, and, and I started having like these weird like 
experiences where like you know this lightness and stuff like that and i'm like man I, I don't know you know people are like man that's a sp- that's that's divine intervention and shit like that yeah. and i'm like oh, okay whatever you know it's just happening but like just the fact that this guy you know cleaned out a storage room and put a mattress in there and gave me a fucking chance that is what changed me right somebody gave me a chance nobody my whole life right i was just looking for somebody to take me in the right direction and these people did it right these people were i smoked at the time so they um you know they're giving me cigarettes they're like welcome home welcome home we love you man i'm like what the fuck is up with these people man they're yeah. they're like on they're on are something. you high yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. what I mean, what kind of meds are y'all on let yeah. me get some of them um and you know that program saved my life and it, it was a it was a you know there was counselors it was 12 step program um so i you know i worked that program to my, the best of my abilities and i started changing on the inside out from the inside out um and from that process i started to experience community i experienced connection i experienced life skills i experienced a, a level of gratitude that i had never experienced and it was a long painful ride right but i worked my fucking ass off I literally did everything in my power. I became a sponge in that program. While I was in there, like for the first six months, I would document all the people that would leave or get kicked out. I mean, there was like 80 to 100 people, right? So these people are dropping like flies around me, but I'm focused on the solution, right? Because that's the key. I got to focus on something, right? I got to gain something in my life. I got to gain a purpose. And in the beginning for me, it was just like, wow, these people are giving me a chance and they're telling me to do this. And if I do this, I'll become like them, right? So I was like, okay, you got me. I'm sold. So I did it. I did it. I started going to different meetings. I was connecting with people. I was doing service work. I was living principles. Like I was being honest. (laughs) Like that was new to me. I was being trustworthy. Um, Integrity is such a huge thing to me. It's doing the right thing when nobody's looking, right? What am I doing in my alone time? Am I building myself up? Am I connecting with people? Am I doing something different? And that's what I was doing for the first time in my life. And all I was doing was modeling the people that were around me, right? So the first time in my life, this, um, this survival skill called the chameleon was working in my benefit. And my whole life, I'd been a follower, right? I would follow people and they would, it would end up in you know, a shitty situation, right? But these people were leading me and teaching me how to love myself by loving me, right? So that's why I say the opposite of addiction is connection, right? Connection in an authentic way, really creating a, a, a place, an environment of love for you, your fellow, and the people around you. Not stigmatizing or pushing away you know, the addict because you're different or you're, you know, you're this, you're that, you're that, you're this, you know, just pushing them away. No, bringing them in and embracing them and loving them and giving them an opportunity, right? That was the greatest thing that ever happened for me. Um, and I need it and it continues to grow. Um, May 22nd of this year, um, will be five years sober for me. Wow. Right. Um, I've never looked back. There has been this spark within my soul that has created a passion for life, right? So, and it's my driving force and it's brought me to whole new levels. And now I'm actually helping people, right? Right. So when I got out of that treatment facility, I started doing the addiction classes and became an addiction counselor after two years of doing that. But I started working at a mental health facility and I got to see life from a different angle. I got to see people in crisis, right? Mm-hmm. With mental health issues, with addiction problems. Um, it was like stepping on another planet every single day. I got to see the worst of the worst. And what it did was it cultivated a level of gratitude for me. I realized like, hey, look, you know, maybe I don't have it so bad, 
And maybe if I can get over my own bullshit, I can help somebody. And by helping somebody, I've created meaning in my life, right? Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that's I think that's great. Like I, I can't beat it. I love it. You know. Now, now it's like, man, I'm I'm about to move into my first house, right? That that's like mine. You know that we're moving in together. I got a beautiful relationship, right? Um, I have a great program. I have great relationships in my life. I have a great job. I have a you know I have my own yeah. business, right? Um, these are things that I never thought were possible, possible, but they're here, right? Miracles are happening in my life. And not only that, it's more than that. It's, um, I feel a level of connection in my life that I never thought was possible. I can wake up, I can be whole, I can be connected, I can be happy. And not every day is perfect, but I keep on working on myself. So I can't stress that enough. It's about, if you want to get sober, right? If you want to do something different, Find some people, right, that are doing something similar, you know, connect with them first off and work your fucking ass off, right? Work your ass off because the consistency in this process for me has given me the opportunity to grow. The lack of consistency creates pain, right? Creates separation. So if I'm consistent in this process of personal development, spiritual development, emotional development, I experience true authentic growth. And that is what I need. Um, so yeah. So wow. A, I mean, so <laughs> I had like a million follow up questions. I was like, okay, let me prepare a question so I could just ask him one more question. Mm-hmm. And I don't have anything to say. I think that everything's been answered. I think that any question that anybody might have, um, or any thought that anybody might have, has been answered. Um, <clears throat> so I'm gonna leave it at that. Okay, great. Sean, thank you so much for coming on here. That was absolutely. Beautiful. Um, it really was. Thank you. Um, Thank you. But yeah. So anyway, do you want to like link to social media or anything? or Yeah. You want to plug your stuff? I mean, you can. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, the first part is um, I um, my website is mvp-consulting.net. Um, that's where you can find my coaching stuff. I do life coaching. I do addiction counseling. Um, other than that, I have an Instagram account where I share stories of hope and experience and, and whatnot. And I also do a lot of inspirational quotes and my tag is Sean Owen eight. And, um, the name is the life and recovery coach. Um, also on Facebook, you can find me Sean Owen, just search me up. Um, also I have a Facebook account that's the life and recovery coach as well. Yeah, <clears throat> that's nice. Yeah, that's beautiful. I'll link that in the um, about me. Okay, but thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. All right. <laughs>